Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. You may not be listening to this on a Friday, but it's a beautiful Friday while we're recording. Matt, how are you doing this lovely day? I'm doing pretty well. Awesome. I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So far, so good. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of day ahead of us. Fill us in. What's the latest and greatest with the Astros? Just mostly depressing, sad things. Losing games you should win. Dusty Baker can't make a competitive lineup to save his life. Jordan Alvarez might have hurt himself. Lance McCullers had a setback and he's another MRI, which, you know, I mean, he could be like toast. Like, that's really bad. Ooh, that's no good. Yeah. So, I mean, the Rangers are doing really, I thought they would be good, but like, it's very enjoyable when the Rangers don't do well because I have a lot of friends who want them to do well and I get to celebrate that. Okay. And so when they were terrible the past couple of years, I said a lot of things (laughs) and now they get to say a lot of things and I don't enjoy that, but it was going to happen. Right. So like... You ride that until the bitter end, but I want to squeeze more juice out of the turnip. I want this, you know, so like hopefully the Astros get it together, but it's just a very frustrating, like, don't panic yet, but come on guys, get it together before it's too late kind of. So what's their record or where do they stand in their league? So, I mean, they're five games back from the Rangers, which is not nothing but a quarter way through the season or whatever. So, or more than that. So... Mm. Yeah, get it together, boys. Okay, come um, on. Is Altuve back? Or he's just... back, yeah. Oh, okay. so, Has he um, done well since he's come back? He's done okay. He didn't do well last night, but he's done okay. But it's just like, there's just certain pieces that need to do better. And, you know, so there's that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well. What about, I mean, have you been following the basketball playoffs? I haven't at all. Like, I keep like seeing rumblings on Twitter and I'm like, just to actually have a conversation with like everyone else, I should look into this and right. I haven't done anything. <laughs> I know. I haven't watched a play a basketball or a quarter of basketball in a long time. Not because I don't want to, just again, priorities. But actually I was telling you, I was downtown for lunch with a gentleman and we we're sitting at the bar and it's funny because he grew up playing basketball, very big into, you know, he went to A&M and I think he played a little bit at A&M. He looked up at the highlights and he's like, wait, basketball playoffs are on? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, like, oh, okay, good. I'm not the only one. But anyway, again, I play, grew up in basketball. I love it. And I used to watch it religiously. And over the years, it's tough to do. It's just tough to do. In other news, I have a question for you. What? Do you like to go fast? Don't I ever. Okay. You know who really likes to go fast? My four-year-old son. <laughs> I was actually going to say, your son? Yeah. <laughs> Does he? Uh, He had his preschool graduation, which I'm sure it's for the parents or whatever. We went to it. It was cute. The kids did a little song. Yeah. But like, (laughs) they're all supposed to dance. Spanish immersion. So like, he's supposed to. Oh, your son goes to Spanish immersion too? Yeah. So so does ours. Okay. They were like, hey, all the kids can dance to like Hispanic music, Spanish language music. Oh, yeah. On the stage because it was an elementary school. Yeah. I asked him and he's like, I just like to run fast. (laughs) It's like, okay. (laughs) You can do that too. Sing and run fast. Yeah. So um, (laughs) all the other kids were dancing. He was running back and forth chasing (laughs) balloons for like two hours. Good Uh, for him. Yes. He likes to go fast. He's an active little fella. No, one more thing before we keep going is it's the best. So my wife and I decided to put our son into Spanish. It's called Spanish Learning Castle. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Spanish immersion, neither her or I know how to speak Spanish. So there's obviously a little bit of a disconnect talking to teachers, but we get, you know, a lot of times we can still communicate. 
but the Christmas like events where they all dress up the same and seeing a bunch of f- three, four, and maybe some five-year-olds out there dancing to songs that we've either made, never heard of, or we have, but we don't know what the link, the like what's actually being said. It is the funniest thing in the world. And uh, I'm sure they do it at most preschools anyways, but our particular school, like they send out links to like, okay, here's the shirts. And so they have all these like matching, like one day was, or one year was like tuxedos and bow ties and all these little kids who have like this gear on and they're singing and dancing dancing is like is absolutely hilarious so uh anyway a little bit about that did you learn a different language growing up I mean, spanish i mean i spanish? took it in school and oh. did a lot of like in college did a lot of trips to mexico like mission trips and that sort of thing and oh cool the cool thing was like when you're working side by side with people who speak the language like you're actually like hey let's build this this way or yeah and uh, like i got pretty good at it for a little while actually like negotiating construction price, like, oh. like arguing with people in villages over like how much we were going to pay for lumber nice. and stuff. So <laughs> negotiating was, in another language, that golly. really refines your skills. I can uh, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So anyway, I asked a question, people are probably wondering what in the world, but in, in drilling operations, everyone likes to go fast and it's not necessarily, I mean, I, again, I think any operation in drilling operations, you need to go fast, whether it's you're rigging up, you're nippling up or you're tripping pipe. Everyone wants to go fast, but where the rubber really hits the road is when you can go fast on bottom, meaning bits on bottom and you're drilling and you've got a high ROP. I mean, that's the world we live in. It's like, how can we get faster, especially when we're drilling? You know, some may or may not realize how important fluid properties are with respect to rate of penetration and how it can actually impact ROP. And I think it'd be a good conversation to have. Yes. We were doing a school with some customers and this was, it became a big topic of conversation, like sort of a sidebar where it was, it was a healthy conversation. So I tried to yeah. like, just let it ride, but it was one of those, there are clearly a lot of internal debates. Like how are the fluids doing this? And not only like, how clean does my fluid have to be? Or how much money am I willing to spend to get faster ROP? Mm, and yeah. at what point do I actually like generate a return on my investment versus like, right. if we only drilled with clear fluid all the time and spent an absolute fortune, but drilled a day faster. Yeah. Like how much does that cost? Right. There's obviously so, a threshold there. Yeah. And an important part of that is understanding the why so that you can sort of understand the gains. And way back when, when we had Fred Dupriest on, he talked a little bit about this specifically, you know, he talked about it as it relates to bitballing and that sort of thing. But there's another great resource. You can Google this, but Leroy Ledgerwood I believe since passed was a distinguished lecturer for the Society of Petroleum Engineers. And he has a slide pack up on the internet that's called Low ROP and Deep Wells. And mm. it talks about some of the functions of why drilling fluid properties can affect ROP. We'll talk more about why other drilling fluid properties can affect ROP. Mm. But I thought it was like very useful resource. So I'm effectively summarizing that, which means you can go look for more yourself if you'd like to. But I thought we could run through that because I think a lot of people don't hear this. No, I think that's actually really neat. And I particularly don't like to go fast. And the reason why, this is my theory, is we're out drilling ourselves. So if everyone could just slow down a little bit, maintain production, don't out drill yourselves, keep people working for longer, don't burn through your top tier inventory. Mm. To me, it makes sense. I don't know. Do you think there's a point where we'll get too fast, man? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to look at, you could go by rig count, how deceptive that can be because you can drill a well so much faster today than you could five or 10 years ago, right? So we continually get better. You know, the nice thing about being in the chemical space is you still use about the same amount of chemicals, whether you drill a bunch of wells with one rig or 
Yeah. You know, or 10 rigs. I think that, look, we're always going to get more efficient, but I think it goes back to even like concepts of automation and other things. It's like the nature of work changes. Yeah. Now, does it suddenly change and we have to find a new way to work? Like, are we out on the street because we're no, like what we were doing is just not part of the conversation? Or is it that we gradually see these things change and now we're providing service or doing things differently in light of that technology? Yeah. So I think even the things that are sold as abrupt changes don't necessarily move as fast as people want them to. Yeah. And so I think it's always going to change, but everything's changing so fast it that is. I don't know, maybe we're sort of raised up into it. <laughs> That's but, true. You know, discipline with respect to drilling and investment management and that sort of thing is probably another conversation. But I think we've been so beat up that anything that would offer some sort of consistency, whatever the heck that means, right? I'm very open to. Yeah. No, and last thing I'll say about that, I was slightly joking. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're in the drilling space, you're always trying to break records and drill faster, like regardless. And to your point, like we'll consume roughly the same amount of product, whether we drill it in eight days versus say 12. But the interesting part of how we've gotten so efficient, when I was in Oklahoma this week talking to one of our customers, a lot of different services who are typically paid on a day rate are being challenged with their economics mm -hmm. because of how fast they're drilling. And so again, another topic for another day, you know, high level speaking is because we've gotten more efficient, companies have had to reevaluate how they run their economics, which again is interesting and not why we're here to talk about today. But anyway, food for thought, maybe a conversation for another day. But when it comes to fluid properties and rate of penetration, we obviously can heavily influence that. So Matt, you mentioned Mr. Leroy there, which I encourage everyone to go look into. Dive a little bit deeper into the relationship. So what we're going to break down is actually something called dilational hardening. What happens is that basically the pressure differential between your wellbore and your cutting is in some cases so great that grinding the cutting away, the cutting is actually harder once you basically grind it from the rock it was attached to than the rock itself. Mm. And that's what can impact your ROP. And so basically we're going to try and capture the difference between those pressures. You know, think about this. So this is low ROP in deep wells. What's your definition of deep? So on and so forth. But what you have is you have your hydrostatic column, you know, heavier muds, this is going to be more present, but you effectively have your wellbore pressure, and then you have the pore pressure of the wellbore itself, right? So you've got your column, then you've got whatever the rock at, whatever the native pressure there is, right? We start drilling, and our bit, as it rotates against the rock, we're thinking PDC cutter, right? What is it doing? It's actually scraping, right? It's actually grinding the rock away. He goes into great detail articulating, like this used to be believed of like a, just, a, you know, a PDC cutting, was just a chip on top of a chip on top of a chip. But when you actually have had like a, we don't see them in a lot of the rocks we drill because the cuttings are all busted up already. But when you get a, when you see those pictures or you're drilling with synthetic base mud in the Gulf of Mexico or, you know, wherever you are, or even drilling through salt in the Permian, you see some of those cuttings that are, they're an extrusion, right? Yeah. And when you smash on them, they, they just break right apart. They're not chips or rocks. Yeah. It's like powder. It's like grains. Yeah. The first time I saw that, actually, you mentioned it, it was in the Marcellus when we were drilling with ABS-40. It was very apparent. Not so much when you got deeper, but when you got into the, the heart of the formation, it was really, to be able to look at it and, and even look at it closer under the microscope, it's really neat. And so if you're out there and you haven't, if you haven't seen it, look it up, but the shape of the cutting on a nice PDC cut there is actually pretty neat. Yeah. But it's powder. And so what's happening is... You know, your differential pressure is basically whatever your wellbore pressure is minus your pore pressure. 
And most of the time we're drilling overbalanced, right? We're mm-hmm. okay. Now what happens is there's poor pressure in that cutting, but I start breaking it away from the rock. And what happens is it's going to start to expand. So that powder being ground away is actually going to open up a little bit. There's actually a pressure inside that cutting. And that pressure, as it's expanding, think about it's taking up more volume, that pressure can drop all the way to near zero or zero, right? So now I have near zero pressure, and then I have my wellbore pressure from fluid on the column. So there's a huge differential there, right? Mm -hmm. Thousands of PSI. And so this thing basically doesn't want to move because of that pressure. And what's happening now is that delta basically makes the cutting stronger than the rock, those intergranular forces. And the best illustration, if you ever hear Fred Dupree's talk, you're going to see him with a little syringe and a balloon attached to it. And you're going to be like, what is that for? The longer he talks. <laughs> right. We've started doing this in, our, in some of our own training. We put frac sand in a balloon, attach it to a syringe, wrap some tape around it. And under normal pressure, you can rub that and you can feel the sand grains moving around or whatever, right? Now pull some air out. And all of a sudden, those grains won't want to deform, right? So you have pulled some air out, so you have negative pressure. Yeah. Your atmospheric pressure is much higher than the internal pressure inside that balloon. And now those grains rub up against each other. They don't want to move. If you press into them, they hold that shape, Yeah. right? That's what's happening down hole is that cutting doesn't want to – it's moving like paste, right? And so the problem is how do we get a pressure equilibrium, right? Mm. And – The thing is that it's not just the energy required to deform that. It's if I can get equilibrium pressure faster, that cutting breaks apart and moves out of the way. So the idea here is if my fluid isn't invading into that cutting quickly, which in a think of a big bayrite laid mud with a tight fluid loss and all that sort of thing, if it's not able to do that quickly, that effect lasts longer. If I'm drilling with a clear fluid, for example, with a high spurt loss, Fluid invades, I get equilibrium quickly, cutting breaks apart. I'm no longer trying to extrude it into this piece. It's in small pieces and it's out of the way and I can keep drilling because I'm on, you know, relatively softer rock now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is where when we talk about clear fluids being able to drill fast, there's no mud actually sealing that cutting. And so the liquid can invade quickly. And in fact, you know, when we talk about a clear fluid like Enerclear or you know, even like an Aquaflex system, mm-hmm. what it is, is keep the solids out, get them out of there. And we're talking like the clearer the fluid, the better, yeah. where it's not just about the clear fluid. It's about sustaining ROP through keeping that fluid as clean as possible through flocculants and really good solids control and that sort of thing. And it doesn't take much to actually start creating a cake that limits that. Wow. I mean, again, I've never actually had anyone explain what's happening down there to such detail, which it's kind of fascinating. You mentioned the clear fluid mm-hmm. and I'm reading off of some notes here. Because again, this is a little bit more detail than I've ever dove into. But so the higher the pore pressure inside the cutting achieves faster equilibrium. Can you explain that again a little bit? So basically cutting pressure is zero. Let's pretend it dropped all the way to zero because it started to expand as, you know, cut off at the bit. Right. And then my wellbore pressure is whatever, you know, TVD times 0.052 times mud weight, right? Yeah. So I have that wellbore pressure up against it. If the fluid can invade into the cutting. Oh, right, right, right. That it'll raise up and I won't have nearly the differential between the cutting 
and the wellbore pressure, which will make it easier. Which will make it easier to move it out of the way. Got okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Connected the dot there. Okay, gotcha. This is uh, like pictures helped us a lot, so it's (laughs) great we're doing this on a podcast. Yeah. But the slides, the Leroy Ledgerwood SP Distinguished Lecture, low ROP in deep wells. Look that up. He has some really good pictures that should help emphasize this concept. What we'll try and do is after this, make a note. Hopefully we can maybe put a link in the show notes. Yeah, if I can find the link. That would be helpful. But if not, Google it. I'm sure it's out there. Yes, I've downloaded it like three or four times because I always forget. Like I search in my files like dilational hardening, right? I like the terms. And then I realize like, oh no, that's not what it is. So I keep saving it the wrong way. And now (laughs) I have it saved like five different ways with those keywords to come up. So (laughs) makes sense. Anyways, I found it five or six times. So hopefully it's still there. (laughs) Perfect. So on the flip side, we've talked clear fluid and the relationship between, you know, ROP and why it's beneficial or how it enhances ROP using essentially no solid system, which most of the time, especially the wells we drill here in the US, you're going to have a regular mud, meaning, you know, your barite and your other solids, your all the other products used to make up certain properties of the mud. Describe what's happening there and why that might further sort of inhibit your ability to maximize ROP. I think one thing is if we have a solids laden mud, you know, you're running your solids control, you're doing everything you can, but fines accumulate, right? We know dilution is the only solution, right? But those fine solids actually drop the spurt loss of a fluid. So spurt loss. So there is a technical definition that I think is elaborate, confusing mess in the API recommended practices, but I think they were just trying to come up with a definition everybody could be happy with. The concept would be that if you take your fluid loss and instead of just recording a number at 30 minutes, if you recorded it at, you know, three minutes and six minutes and uh, like that, and you log square root time versus your fluid loss, it should be a straight line, theoretically, or it should be pretty straight. Except for getting to that spot, there's a gap. So it's basically like your zero intercept. Oh, yeah. So that's what's counted as the spurt loss. But typically what you'll see that you'll know whether you have a high or low spurt loss is crack open the valve stem and you know that fluid that squirts out immediately. Mm-hmm. That's more or less what you're looking at, right? And then it levels off. So that initial seal. Yeah. So a high spurt loss, boom, inside the cutting, closer to pressure equilibrium, really tight longer time to get to pressure equilibrium. Right. And the thing is, when I was doing reservoir drilling fluid design where you didn't want any filtrate interacting with the formation, you wanted your spurt loss as low as you'd possibly get it. Right. What did we do if our spurt loss was high? Added the finest calcium carbonate we could get our hands on. So your fine solids actually help with that packing, or some of them do. Once again, it goes on to the particle size distribution, that sort of thing. But those fine solids in combination with bayrite and these other things actually lower your spurt loss and therefore can have some impact on this. The other thing is just think of plastic viscosity in general. Okay, so when we think of a Bingham plastic model, what you have is you basically have shear rate versus shear stress and then viscosity, right? And the slope of that line to get to the zero intercept is that slope is plastic viscosity. So it's pretty flat, you know, my yield point, which is the zero intercept, and the slope's going to be lower. But if it's really high, that means I've got a very high slope. So, you know, that PVYP ratio, my plastic viscosity is much higher than my yield point or slope more in that direction. What happens is at very high shear rates, my fluid is very thick, okay? Because viscosity is higher up on that line, yeah. right? Well, what is the highest shear position you're going to be at? Probably at the jet of the bit, right? right? So my fluid, if my PV is high is going to be thicker as it comes out, right? Which is going to, once again, affect invasion. I mean, we're talking about milliseconds, maybe microseconds at the cutting. So it's going to affect that. 
it's also going to limit the impact force or the jetting force of basically breaking up this cutting to because I'm pumping out a thicker fluid now. Mm-hmm. Or my other option is because I'm seeing higher circulating pressures is what? Lower my pump rate. Right. So I'm creating my own problems, right? Yeah. So you're limiting that equilibrium. And so keeping your plastic viscosity as low as possible is something that we want if we can make that make sense. There's other things to think about, right? Like a higher PV means I have to circulate more slowly, which means I don't have as much turbulence, which means it's harder to clean the hole, mm-hmm. right? There's other reasons that plastic viscosity affects me as a drilling system. But as us trying to focus on those very tiny fractions of seconds right at the cutting, reaching pressure equilibrium, these things are happening. That's a big deal. The issue that we get into is everybody says, okay, so I want a really high leak off. High leak off is possible in my oil-based mud. Not necessarily, because we have this other thing called wellbore stability, <laughs> right? Right. And so one of the things that in Mr. Ledgerwood's slides, he even says at the end is he's like, an interesting area of investigation would be, how do you keep your spurt loss high and have drilling fluid additives? And like, they're completely at odds with one another, right? Like, don't let fluid get in between the rock where it might be unstable, but let it get into the cutting. Right. Because the mechanisms are the exact same. So that's the quandary. I've got to keep this hole open. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah. I think bit technology has advanced a lot to maybe help with some of this. I think this is why people talk a lot more about bit hydraulics optimization is hopefully we can apply some shearing force up against that powder and, you know, help break things apart. But it's very, very hard. It's harder than the rock. So then we break down to going to, you know, how do I make this economical? We know that brand new mud with no drilled solids in it drills fast, right? When we've done trials with new base oil, the first well, inevitably, everybody gets Always, really excited yeah. <laughs> at how fast we're drilling. Right. And then we're like, wait till the fourth well. Wait till this stuff is normal like everything else. And generally then we see, and look, every base oil case history is like, look, we increased ROP with the base oil. It's like, no, you use clean mud, probably. Or that was a huge factor in it. So that's a big question. And then it goes, okay, well, how much money do I spend on dilution then so that I can get the fastest ROP possible without spending too much money because I can't drill with new mud all the time? Right. Yeah. So it begs the question, and we've talked about clay-free systems and stuff, but like hearing all this, the question would then be, well, why don't we just use systems that have no, again, economics aside, mm-hmm. in theory, it would make sense to use all liquid products, right? Like liquid viscosifiers, liquid fluid loss reducers. You can't really get away with barite not being in the system unless you're using a weighted brine. But in theory, would it not make sense just to go solids-free with everything? Well, it goes back to those liquids. So if you have a liquid fluid loss reducer, it's still reducing fluid loss, right? Even the liquid additives and even say a clay-free system, it's like, okay, it drops my PV a couple of points. That's not a bad thing. The bigger difference maker, in my opinion, with low clay muds or clay-free or whatever you want to call them, is that because there's a spec to the fluid properties, you have to keep them clean. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a behavioral thing that, oh, no, I can't let solids get too high. Right. Versus a conventional system where people are like, ah, I run it dirty. We'll get away with it. And it's like, well, no, these polymers in a low clay mud actually act on the solids. Okay. And so like your rheology will go nuts if you let it get dirty. So you have to keep it clean. And it's like, well, I guess we ought to keep it clean. Right. So I think that there's an inflection point there where like the so-called commercial solids don't take up a huge proportion of everything. Right. But most of the ones we add are to affect wellbore quality, which that's going to affect lubricity. That's going to affect whether I can get in and out of the hole. Yeah. Like they're not doing nothing. The problem is they're not smart either. And so they're going to do the same thing to a cutting and create a filter cake like they will try to do on right. your wellbore wall. Right. And again, obviously 
if there was such a huge sort of differentiator between going with something like that versus a conventional system, everyone and their dog would be using a clay-free yeah. system or everything. But clearly, as Matt has described, it, it's not quite that easy. And I was sort of a question I wanted to like, because you know, without thinking through it, one might think, oh, well, let's just go to our provider and tell them we don't want to run a conventional system because Matt and Justin said that no solids and you're going to increase your OP and everyone's going to be super happy. Again, it's understanding what's really happening down hole, I think is really important because again, for the most part, most people don't dive into it to that level of detail. And there's a ton more resources out there. But I mean, again, you've helped me understand it better, even just going through it today. And so, but again, like you had said earlier, a lot of it is like, what are the economics and where's that crossover? Because if you spend, you know, again, it's like you, you spend a bunch of money to save a little bit. Well, the net is that you're spending more money. But no, it's an interesting concept. And it'd be interesting to hear, you know, we had a gentleman on, I think before yeah, it was years ago talking about bit technology and bit design. Yeah. It'd be neat to sort of supplement this with someone in the bit world that could speak on this because it, again, they live and breathe this stuff. It's like, how can we make minor tweaks to the cutters and whatever blades and everything? And so having a conversation that aligns well with what we're talking about, I think would be super cool. So maybe we can line that up. I don't have any other questions, Matt. I think we did a pretty good double click on the old ROP and fluid property segment. Do you have any other thoughts around that? I mean, the only other thing I would add is some of this stuff is probably going to vary by the type of rock you're drilling through. Just, you know, shale's not going to have as much leak, like it's less permeable to begin with. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, you know, these pressure effects aren't there, but yeah, those are just things that like a sand versus a shale and that sort of thing, but and a carbonate for that matter. But no, this stuff fascinated me. Like it's one of those... I remember I went back to our podcast with Fred because he talks about this with respect to bitballing because right. it's the bitballing, but like the clay is expanding and what it's doing is it's working its way up into the junk slots or whatever. Uh, and yeah. It's basically like lifting the bit. And so the cutter is not as engaged with the rock you're trying to drill through, but he's like, this is a mechanical engineering question. That's why you don't get a mud advisor to explain this to you. And, you know, he's big on thinking about the physics and everything. Yeah. It's one of those, right? Like, we sell chemicals, but look at the mechanical effects of our chemicals. Right. That's another one. If you want to go back and look at that one, that one's on YouTube as well. And he has slides. So like, that's another thing worth checking out. Yeah, most definitely. No, I appreciate it, Matt. And uh, for the listeners out there, hopefully you've learned something today. If you want us to elaborate or if you have any further questions on the topic, again, reach out to us, please, whether it be LinkedIn or you can reach out to us over email at the flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. Be sure to subscribe, share this with someone, even in the, maybe the bit world that could chime in and connect with us. And then please follow us on LinkedIn. A lot of great content there, YouTube, all the rest of it. And yeah, Matt, thanks again for uh, describing all this. And for all the listeners, thank you for listening. We really appreciate the support. And until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.